You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Mompos, Bolivar. That's right. For those of you who have children at school in Colombia, you'll know that it's half term. Here on the coast, they call it the Semana de Uribe. But for those of us here, it is half term, and I'm enjoying a little break from Bogota and the rain thereabouts. Anyway, this week is episode 444 of the Columbia Calling Podcast, and we have very special guest, Jenny Pierce. She's a research professor at the Latin America and Caribbean Center at the London School of Economics. Anyone who follows Latin America closely will know her name because she's been well, reporting on the area and visiting the area since the 1960s. And this time with Juan David Velasco, uh, well, a politologist, a, a political scientist from the Javeriana University in Bogota. They've written a report about the elites and violence since 1991 in Colombia. 1991, you'll remember, is the period where the new constitution was put into play. So she talks. she's going to be talking to us about the elites and the violence. And it's only really a little over a thousand people who control most everything in Colombia. And so that's what's revealed, something that we already knew, but revealed in this podcast. And it's a fascinating look at the way, well, that Colombia works, the machinations behind the politics, beside the politics, up and down through the politics. So please stay tuned for this episode 444 after the news with Emily Hart. We'll be back with Jenny Pierce. Research professor at London School of Economics. So don't go away. Thank you again. And we're back. This is segment three of the Columbia Calling podcast. I've been talking about this upcoming podcast for some time because it's been, well, it's been a while in the works. And my very special guest is no less than Jenny Pierce, research professor of the Latin American and Caribbean Center at the London School of Economics, and basically one of the minds, the great minds about Latin America and, well, studying the elites and so on and so forth. So let me just say, welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. No, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure because I, mean, I know your name from a long time. I've never spoken to you in person. Uh, and, you know, it's a few, I guess it's over a month ago now that I was reading El Espectador and there it was. It popped up the link to your latest report with the political science, uh, scientist and teacher Juan Velasco of the Universidad Javeriana, so my alma mater. Um, but it popped up and it's about the power concentrated in Colombia by the elites. It's called Elites, Poder y Principios de Dominación en Colombia from 1991 to 2022. Uh, let's just start because I mean we could ask you anything, but let's let's focus on this on this uh, uh, on on this report. Let's just start. How how did you decide to compile this? Because I can name some elites here and there, but this is a very in depth investigation. Uh, so let's start. How long did it take? Well, I've been working for about five years on uh, elites in Latin America, and uh, I've done a lot of work, particularly in Mexico and Colombia, and I've been doing a lot of interviews. Um, but what I wanted to do was something that actually, uh, first of all, defined the word much better. Mm. And there's a huge literature on mm. what is an elite and a lot of controversy and differences of opinion, but also then to find a way of actually developing uh, a quantitative measure as well as continuing to do qualitative research through interviews. Mm. And so working with Wanda Velasco and the team, we had a team of people for, to which I'm extremely grateful. We all gave time voluntarily 
Carpaz um, gave me some money for expenses to come to Colombia, but otherwise everyone's been working voluntarily. And essentially the idea was to prove, sort of produce something that actually had some, some rigor to the uh, definition and to actually researching, well, who are these people? Mm. And, and, and what did you come to, how did you define then what is an elite in the Colombian case? Yes. Well, first of all, I had to define the word generally because, yeah. uh, and I'll try to be brief on this because so uh, not everyone might be interested in all this detail, but we have a whole, uh, at least since Karl Marx talked about class, mm. we have, so we're talking about the 1840s till today, we have an extraordinary rich literature on mm. elite. And for much of, uh, uh, well, I would say until the middle of last century, to the to the last to nineteen nineteen sixties, this was very much concentrated in Europe, mm. and it was began well with Marx, but then you had the Italian school of uh, Pareto and Mosca who started to question, well, do we need to really accept class? No, because now power is in politics and is in the political elite, not the economic elite. And they, well, the argument was, well, ultimately, Marx uh, hasn't shown why exactly the economic elites managed to control the state. So that's led to a sort of foundation of a kind of basic debate between liberal political theorists and Marxists, mm. which has continued in various forms, but more nuanced until our day. But I would say you you first of all need to we need to draw attention to the fact that for kind of the early part of last century, the notion was let's focus on political elites. It's inevitable there will be elites. Uh, that elites emerge in all organizations, including trade unions um, as well as other organizations. And Ultimately, that's the society we live in. And one of the problems that Pareto, the school, felt was the quality of these elites isn't always great. So you have a sort of circulation of elites, but that doesn't mean you have elites as meaning the best, which was sort of one of the ideas of the word. Then you had the sort of post-Second uh, World War in the States. You had uh, right mills and you had the sort of people influenced by the left coming back in saying you can't understand power in the United States unless you understand the relationship between the corporate elites, the military elites and the political elites. Robert Dahl is pluralism. No, uh, there's too much power is not concentrated. It's dispersed. And so we have uh, pl uh, plurality, and then you have the Marxists coming back with Pulantzis and uh, and Miliband, uh, for whom yeah Marx didn't show exactly how the economic elites, the capitalist class, controlled the state, but they don't have to control it directly. Said Pulantzis, you have a relative autonomy, mm. um, and then uh, Miliband said no. In the in the UK, you show that these elites come to the same come from the same school and enter the state. And now just to get to the theorist who probably influenced me most in coming up with how we've understood elites and what has been very important for our empirical work uh, is Pierre Bourdieu, because Bourdieu, the French sociologist, who was looking at the shifts in the late 60s in France uh, and the way it looked as if a technocratic elite of the haute école was coming to control France rather than the capitalist class. And, and Bourdieu was influenced by Marx, but not a deterministic Marxist. Um, but he was certainly interested in forms of capital. But this is the interesting thing. First of all, he begins to say, it's not just economic capital, though he does believe economic capital matters most, but he looks at cultural capital, which is tastes and knowledges, uh, your spaces you enjoy, um, and you draw on that cultural capital. You have symbolic capital, which is reputation, which is uh, recognition, prestige. And there's social capital, which is your social relationships and your family. So he begins to look at this notion that you have a range of different capitals being brought in and drawn upon by the most powerful. And they are in dispute as to who's going to kind of, whose capital is going to, this is the key sentence, to dictate the dominant principles of domination. And this becomes a very key part of our work because the I, what Bourdieu gives us is to dictate the dominant principles of domination means that 
these various capitals are drawn upon to say in which field of capital, which principles will we all have to agree are the principles of the elite that we all have to acknowledge are the most powerful. And then finally, Mike Savage in my university came up with the notion, also influenced by Bourdieu, of constellations of elites. So there's not one hegemonic elite, but constellations or groups of elites disputing themselves uh, where these dominant principles lie. So it means that we didn't, in our work, believe that you actually had, you just looked at the Bogota elite or one elite that dominates Colombia. You have to look at dominant elites in a range of fields and the capitals they draw upon to actually determine those dominant principles of domination. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit long. No. But- <laughs> Not at all, because now I see it, and I see it in the report, because you do put down the political elite, you have the economic elite, you have the technocratic elite, uh, you know, the judicial elite, the unions as well. I'm sure I'm missing some, but I noted a lockdown. Um, and, and that makes perfect sense. And of course, there are. It's not, I mean, well, I think we could say that in Colombia, things are, are majority Bogota, but... As you say, the constellations uh, that we we can look, obviously, at Medellin has been a shifting. Calca moves so much money. But then if I'm thinking of, you know, and I didn't want to jump into this, but I looked into, you said you've got the Ardila group. So they, you know, Bogotano, I guess, I think. I mean, are they Bogotano, Ardila, Lule? And yeah, so there are RCN news and all of that postal one, but also in Calca. So down there with the sugar that comes through and so on. So I see this in the constellations. Very interesting. Um, so why then, if we're if we're moving forwards and so on, and I, I keep looking at my studies and I'm looking at the, the sort of domination that took place, I have to ask, you know, and around the 1940s, and I know your studies, your, your this report starts in 1991, new constitution, good place to start on any study about Colombia if you're going to do the, the actuality. But in the 1940s, when, when Fernando Masuera came in as mayor of Bogota, was it four times or so, um, he was from the provinces. And from what I understand, I mean, what we would say, the provincia, it's kind of a you know, classist thing, it's the problem of the provinces. But that's how it was seen. And, and I'm thinking as well, it's a, he, he then married into the Kling family, and that gave him a certain prestige, which we still see today. So how would someone... Social oh, capital. Social capital then. There we go. There's your other one, social capital, because then you start seeing his photos in society magazines when I think previously he wouldn't have been. He would have just been a political figure. So mm-hmm. social capital is very interesting. It's like an influencer, isn't it? That ghastly word. Um, <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's so interesting. I want then, then there's something else that you, you draw on massively, of course, is land reform. And yeah. if we just, and I, we, I know we're jumping around, but I think, you know, for the benefit of my, my listeners that we just jump around like this land reform has never taken place here, right? I mean, every other Latin American country has had some sort of land reform, be it uh, as far as I know, I mean, uh, but land reform has never taken place. And of course, num- point number one on the peace accords from 2016, and Gustavo Petro, president, has talked about the need. For land reform. But as you say in your report, this has been a uniting <laughs> uh, uh, source of discord by these elites, because it's not just politics and economics and so on. The land is connecting. It's, it's like the ilo conductor all the way through. So how do we see this developing? I mean, how, first of all, how do these people get all the land? Are they just, I mean, just sort of appropriate it? Well, there has been a lot of that. And of course, that is how land has been (laughs) generally appropriated, even in England, you know, originally. And so um, I think you can, you know, I should sort of in parenthesis say that one of the reasons we are doing this work, I mean, this is only the first stage, by the way, because we've got uh, other stages, is because uh, we're very connecting this to violence Mm. and peace. Right. So the issue of land reform is very important because it's, as we know, land has been one of the sources of some of the uh, most horrendous violences in Colombia. Mm. And so um, the uh, the notion of land and defence of the right to property 
We see this as what we call these principles of domination in the history of Colombia that elites have tended to agree to as something that, although they might be constellations, you have elites in different sectors, it's not the same as Sindicato Antioqueño, the sort of right. those that have come out of the industrial sector of Medellin and Antioquia as the... Uh, the Cauca elite or the elite of uh, the Valle de Cauca, when you where you've got the the, the Azucareros, etc., they have very different sort of histories and very different processes. But at some level, there's an agreement that you don't touch property. Mm-hmm. The sacralization that we call it, the sacralization of, of sacralization of property, um, and so we that's not the only uh, issue of uh, dominant principle of domination, but it is clearly one that connects very much this this study to the problem of violences, because one has to ask, well, why is it that at the end of the day, the defense of property has led elites to rally round to actually prevent any sort of agrarian reform, which could have been the source of democratization, opening up uh, a different kind of agriculture, uh, opening up possibilities for Colombia when it is the most, one of the most unequal regions in the world, in certainly in terms of land tenure. And so this history is particularly important. And when I compare it, say, to, to, to England, for instance, in this sense, um, in the sense that, uh, elites in, in, in England, and I don't say this, what I'm about to say is not because I think elites in England have not used violence because they absolutely have. But there was this moment of shift when the rural sector and the landed sector, right, gave way politically to uh, the industrial sector, the manufacturers, right? And so, I mean, I'm cutting a long story short. Yeah, yeah very much. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Barrington Moore, a famous uh, historical sociologist, puts it this way, so without a bourgeoisie, there's no democracy. So in other words, if you didn't have the emergence of uh, a class that came out of a new constellation, if you like, that becomes dominant, puts forward different uh, dominant principles. If you don't have that, you are then going to have a society that is continuously exploiting uh, an agrarian class, making it extremely difficult to make change in any sense uh, peacefully. And also what's happened over time in UK and Europe, uh, given in terms of agrarian change, We could also look at uh, South Korea and places in the global south, which have become ultimately industrialized. Agrarian reform played a big role in that. uh, And it played uh, an extraordinary role, ultimately, uh, in transforming attitudes of elites in the sense that they began to invest. And this began happening earlier than the kind of more rise of industrial bourgeoisie, but the sort of decision to accept a third party to sort out conflicts between elites. That's what I call the rule of law for the minute. I mean, again, lots more to say about that. But it took centuries and our elites continue to use violence overseas. But when you look at the history of Europe, the one form of violence that declined was interpersonal male or male violence. Mm-hmm. This has not happened in Colombia. And so this, this issue of agrarian reform that you've raised becomes incredibly significant because defending the right to property has led elites to use violence or to support violence. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the key challenges the country faces. I think this is very, this, this, this point of uh, the industrial class, let's say, the, 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 the factories in England, we have the factories here, but it's not an industrialization as we would consider it. So is this is a this has permitted, let's say, the land owning elites to um appropriate what little industrialization occurred, say uh maybe the transport industries or maybe the construction industries or the as you said before, the azucareros of sugar, would we say that they've been able to then sort of push this into their own form of domination rather than creating uh, constellations? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very complex history, but if you look at uh, Antioquia, mm. you can, where industrialization did take place, actually the origins of that industrialization was much more sort of socially conservative uh, form of uh, the very the very idea of, uh, of what the, uh, the industrialists of, of Antioquia did 
was to kind of create some mm. attempt to create some sort of uh, social form. You have you have people like Nicanor Restrepo, who I interviewed, who emerged out of that, who would consider himself in some sense a kind of more like our uh, industrial bourgeoisie, if you like. Mm. But that industry collapsed, of course, that textile industry, yep. right? And it's not, I think, a coincidence that the drug trafficking emerged just as that collapsed. And then in terms of these other regional elites and their, and their the relationship to land and to economic development, I think these different sectors, um, what has been very important in, in Colombia is until the, the, the 1991 constitution, you could say, um, there was a kind of two-party bifurcated elite that managed to uh, divide the elite, mm. but divided it uh, through ultimately a sort of Bogota concentration of the political elite, if you like, mm. and a transactional politics that is most evident uh, in the Frente Nacional, the National Front Pact, um, in which they divide up the, the state, if you like. And that, I think that politics there, something we want to look at more is how drug trafficking affected that transactional politics, you know, in which the, the cost of the vote, I remember when I first came to Colombia in the 70s, the cost of the vote was was rising. Um, and so, you know, that so also we had a, ultimately had a great sort of impact on the nature of the political system. But then we have the 1991 constitution. And what we found, and that's why we took that date, was some shifts here of the that Bogota political elite no longer controlling politics in quite the same way. The fragmentation of elites and the rise of regional elites. And I think this issue, uh, and for us, for instance, in our study up till now, uh, we've clearly looked at the elites in a national sense, yeah. but what we haven't done yet is look at all the regional elites to to explore each of those processes in every region, because wow. that's what we need to do. That's a very complex history. It is not the same. The Costa, uh, Caribeño, you know what happens there. The the, the Chad and other sort mm. of. Things. It's not the same as what happens in the Cauca or, or uh, Casanare, where I've worked, or other places, and so. You know, this is something that we need to get uh, a, a grip to grip on more. There's obviously lots of people that have done very useful studies. Who uh, it's 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 just it's kind of terrifying, in truth, when we look at it. If you're going to do a regional, or let's say almost family by family per region study. We're looking at volumes. <laughs> I mean, this, this is going to yes. be, it will be, end up being, you know, an absolute sort of opus uh, to rival the Encyclopedia Britannica. But because <laughs> I, I just, I can just see the leather bound. I am, um, now you did a lot of the investigation into this by interviews. Mm. How yes. did you interview people? Uh, and not tell them, well, we think you're the elite, <laughs> and uh, or did they just well, accept it? No, I talked sort of quite openly, really, about mm. the study we're doing, because, again, our, our aim is not to create enemies or to create hatreds or to – it's to, to create understanding and debate. Mm -hmm. It's to generate debate. And so we weren't there to uh, to interview people and make them feel awful. <laughs> we were there to actually find, invite them to sort of yeah. help us understand mm -hmm. how they think, what are the what are the motivating factors. Particularly, I was interested in how they how they understand violence, how they respond to violence, when do they respond to violence, and mm -hmm. um, how do they. Uh, we, we started work, and we already got quite a lot on this, on, on which elites began to support the peace accord mm. in 2016 and who funded the campaign for supporting it and who uh, was against it. And so there's some issues here about, you know, we, we needed to know how, you know, what were their motivations. And so um, so very, very interesting, really. I, I mean, I could go into a lot of detail and there won't be time, but, um, you know, I, I could you know, I've, I've managed to sort of, I suppose, get a sense of of the, the these great differences in the constellations and how sectoral interests make a difference. You know, yeah. difference if you're a coffee farmer uh, or, or if you're a cattle rancher, uh, if you're an industrialist, if you're a sugar pl uh, plantation owner. Um, and so 
all these sexual interests, you know, and then to try and find out, well, where amongst these interests is there something which could be brought to bear on mm. supporting a peace project, not just the accord, but the reforms and transformations needed to build peace. That is the great problem because quite a lot of elites did support the accord, not all, we know, but quite a few. But we're it's not really so clear that they actually bought into all the transformations that were going to be needed, such as a grand reform, mm. which would be needed in order to really make that peace accord work. And, wow, uh, so who is the biggest name to support it? <laughs> you don't have to answer that. It's <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, the Sindhi of Kenya supported it. Okay, there yeah. you go. And who yeah. would have thought from Antioquia, you know? Who would have thought? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they are the closest to what we might we might have called a sort of national industrial class. So mm. in some senses, they are the closest to the idea we might have had of a sort of state builder's rule of law, etc. Of course, yeah. Medellin has gone through this, as I was saying, a whole period of dealing with drug trafficking. It's still a major issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and being an elite in Medellin and all the sort of family connections there, um, you know, we know the sort of story that's out there that uh, there was uh, a great deal of reluctance to let the drug traffickers into the social capital that you mm-hmm. need to be elite. It's not so clear that they weren't really willing to use the economic capital. And uh, and so there are these these issues that uh, become quite important, not just the Sindicato Antioquenio. I think the sort of economic capital from drugs is probably being quite significant and not talked about quite uh, in the way it ought to be for obvious reasons. Um, but clearly, um, it's a major issue in so many ways. And in terms also of willingness for some elites to support uh, yeah. To what lengths would you go to support um, uh, resistance to agrarian reform, but also to insurgents on the left? Of course, I think there's uh, you know before I've, I've got your 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 report here. Um, so, how many people did you interview? Do you have that idea uh, of thousands? Around about no, no, around about sort of fifty to sixty. Okay. Yes. Because then, yeah. Um, but I was looking at the figures here in your report. There's 1,281 people belonging to the elite, and then you sort of divide it up. That makes yes. 0.02% of the population. Yes. I want to know a little bit, I mean, how does that, because you know, obviously, the rest of Latin America very well, but how does that compare, for example, to a place like El Salvador or, or Guatemala, which have been obviously very traditionally yes. ruled by elites? Yes. I mean, um, there isn't a, a, a data bank uh, similar in those countries, although I've just been in Guatemala, in fact, and they just translated another sort of a study I did on elites mm-hmm. and violence in Latin America because it's a huge in, a huge interest and huge uh, issue for the countries. But yes, I would say probably it, uh, wealth is even more concentrated. Mm. But one of the differences I particularly noted in Guatemala, um, and more so just now, is, for instance, in Colombia, we found that the military are not part of the elite, right? Mm-hmm. So there's always been a principle that the rule in Colombia would be by civil power, mm. and the military would be subservient. And we also found that the military came from provinces from not from the sort of elite universities or schools that the elites come from. And so there's a kind of really big sort of uh, differentiation between the military. And that's something that means Colombia stands out from other parts of Latin America. But in Guatemala, what's interesting uh, and what's happened over the last sort of uh, couple of decades is the military who served the elites for a long time in Guatemala now want to be the elite, right? And this is a very worrying development. So you have in Guatemala, you know, increasing role of the military in politics and society. They've always had a role, mm. but now it's like they also want the status and the wealth that others have had. So there's that sort of issue there that's emergent in Guatemala that uh, is is particularly sort of significant. And then in El Salvador, if you, which is a country I time in and was there a lot in the war um there i think what you've got is a backlash to elites 
from a politician who comes from a new elite, mm. right? <laughs> Bukele, um, he's, you know, part of, uh, and here I'm, introduce a concept we haven't talked about yet which is oligarchic elites and i need to introduce that because basically bourdieu you know believed that economic power was gave you a greater capital and resource than any other to define politics and to define the the dominant principles what happens with economic power is that the defense of wealth becomes important which means you don't necessarily put all your eggs into the basket of one political group. You can actually fund different political groups, and but your defense of wealth is very important. So if you look at a family like the Zielinski in uh, Colombia, right, you are looking at something rather like the Bukele in El Salvador, <laughs> and you're looking at an elite that's, that's emerged in the neoliberal era more than you know any other. They're not the old landowning elites. Right, they're the elites that have sort of you, you know emerged in a different a different way, and those elites actually do look at politics differently. And of course, Bukele has been able. I mean, you know, it's not usual for oligarchic elites to go directly into politics, but Bukele, the son of a of a, of a, of a big of a businessman, has done so. But he's come in the name of being anti-elite. <laughs> yeah, which. It's sort of playing it both off, you know, for himself, for the for the, for the personal benefit. When we the Jelinski, would we say that the, the Jelinski elite is an urban elite? Yes, I would say it was an urban. It is mm. an urban elite, and uh, Jelinski is now in the Forbes list of the most. And what we found with Adila Lule and with others is they, you know, what. It's very interesting. It's dominant principles domination. It's how do you ensure your ideas of what makes a good society? Where are the best kind of politics? Uh, you know, why, where do you, how do you do that? And of course, owning media, yeah, owning newspapers, owning Semana. <laughs> and now Zelensky owns Semana. And yeah. so, but he did also give funding to Petro. Yeah. And so you have there the kind of the, the defense of wealth means you hedge your bets rather it's, but uh, you know they're still very powerful figures very pragmatic isn't it very uh, <laughs> um but when you i was going to get on to the the issue of the media um of course uh jumping to it the media of course you've got you know the sarmiento group uh well yes. that's a bigilinski with semana santo domingo with caracol that's 220 different branches and ardila lule with rcn however many that is and they really do control the yes. information i yes. mean that's the truth of it but um i i was looking at this and you said you know when you brought up the elite oligarchy there's 46 people yes that's in the tiny yes tiny number 46 yes. when you yes. think of a population we use the forms we use the forms list in the semana publication of the richest you know every every year yes yes I mean, and so the 44 you know 46 people but the 44 families and a thousand companies this is all from the report so if we name them it's sarmiento you know aval and el tiempo santo domingo D1, D1, Caracol, Echavarria, Falabella, Corona, Corona, Chilinski, Remax, GNB, Surameri, Suramericana, Nutresa, Semana, of course, Ardila, Asien, Posto One, Incauca, Cortez, Grupo Bolivar, Da Vivienda, Mejia, Correa, Al Costo. And then it sort of splinters out, uh, as you see. But these are the, and we can pick up the Charo, the Araujo, the Morenos, the Masueras. Uh, and I just find it amazing that you've you've done this. I, what, when you put this down, and it's been in El Espectador and other people, have these people responded to you, the people that you've put them there? Because despite the fact you say that this is for debate and for conversation, mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to come with a negative. It, it comes with a negative slant, not necessarily from you, but the way we 
now perceive elites. You know, it's not a, uh, yeah. it's not a gentleman's club. <laughs> it's, it's certainly a man-dominated club, but it's not like I would yeah. say a gentleman's club of, of old. It's this is a very powerful, very small, very politically and economically, uh, you know, powerful group. As I yeah. said, so, so did any of them get in touch with you, or even threaten you when you when you brought this out? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We've had some sort of political elites get in touch and uh, and shown a great deal of interest. Mm. Um, and some, not some elites, but I, people I would say were part of constellations, but not these, the most powerful. Mm. Um, I some of the people who got in touch with us, I think, are actually also quite concerned. Mm. Be, not not because uh, of you know the potential for the negative reactions, but I think because there's there's a recognition. That the inequalities that Colombia faces, you know, is, is that are so entrenched, yeah. and these principles of domination that have so made it impossible to introduce the reforms mm. that are going to be necessary to address those inequalities and to give everybody a life chance. And at the end of the day, um, you know, I think the I think it's hard for them to sort of connect this structure of power with the violence. And for me, that is uh, the critical, critical issue, that uh, it's hard to think of how Colombia is going to reduce the violences. And I, I talk always about chronic violences in mm. many countries that America work because it's the violence is a phenomenon, but it has multiple expressions. Mm -hmm. And so I've watched one of my years working in Medellin, I've watched the mutations. And I've also watched the fact that... Um, uh, the measurement of violence just by homicides is not enough. Um, I remember being in the one of the comunas in, in Medellin and finding out that because Medellin was so concerned that its homicide rate gave it this reputation of being the most violent city in the world, it, the combos, the gangs, no longer wanted to, uh, were no longer going to kill and you had to ask permission to murder, right? And so, but they continued extorting and selling virginity of young girls. And so, in other words, you know, when you look at the violences in their reproduction, you know, in various spaces, and I haven't dealt with anything like the multiple expressions and the, the murder of social leaders uh, that have taken place, the uh, differential violences against the Afro-Colombian community, indigenous communities, all the issues that we, you know, we sadly know happen. But what can we do about these violences if you don't have a rule of law? that's equitable, accessible for everyone. You don't have a sense of justice. You don't have a sense of social justice. You have entrenched inequalities. You have kids growing up in, because Colombia is still a mostly urban country, 80% um, urban, you know, and we talk about the violences in the rural areas, but there are multiple violences in the cities. And if you're growing up in those environments with very little sense of a future, a long-term future, with drugs uh, selling or trafficking, offering incredible advantages that nothing else can offer, then that reproduction violence is going to happen. So the economy has to start looking after everybody. It has to start offering the generations that are growing up in this, something new, otherwise we will reproduce the intergenerational cycles of violence in Kalei. And that, I think, is a really terrifying prospect. And um, is, yeah. this is what we are living, um, yeah. the intergenerational cycles of violence. I wanted to jump in there because I would say that a child growing up in rural Colombia with no opportunities or access to basic human rights running water, education, healthcare, and so on, that itself is a violence. Mm -hmm. That's, I would yeah. say that. If, if somebody is, you know, there's obviously the famous Galtong's idea of structural violence. I call that inequality. But when people die through malnutrition, their body is affected, mm. right? So for me, the uh, somatic effects of acts and actions of somatic harm, but effects on the body, is what constitutes violence in that violence sends meanings. It generates meanings and creates meanings yeah. and is laden with meanings. That, for me, is, is what we're seeing. And the reason why, one of the reasons, focusing on elites, is because we often think of, when we think of, I think of the poor. But I've wor I work as well with many poor communities in Latin America who experience violences. But it made me think, well, where are the elites? They can 
create, uh, they don't need security at a public level because they can live in gated communities, they can buy private security, and they live a life, you know, where they can protect themselves. Now, that began to break down in some areas, such as in in Antioquia, when they began to get fears of kidnapping, and in Monterrey, Mexico, the same. And then they began to act, right? And they began to support a different kind of thing. But, you know, you're not going to get security as a public good that really generates security for everyone, including human security, which I really like the fact that Petra is talking about that. You will not get that unless elites are prepared to pay tax and support uh, a public security provision that is genuinely accessible for everybody. And this is a great problem. Yeah, yeah, and it, and if I, it, it occurred to me when we were talking about Guatemala and, and the military, and the military becoming an elite, and I suppose that spans back to kind of the Civil War period. Rios Montt bringing in, of course, he comes the polit- political figure. I, Jimmy Morales being put in by the military. Um, is there a possibility of that happening here when you see people like uh, for uh, General or now retired General Zapatero? You get, he's on a soapbox, isn't he? And and then we had the for a short while the vice president. Uh, I can't remember his name for Santos. I was sure that he was going to run for president at some point because why would you put them into this picture? So is, are we seeing a shift towards the military becoming an elite? I mean, this this I think gets to the heart of the dominant principles of domination. Naranjo, Naranjo, that was it. Yes, was it? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. From the police force, you know, mm-hmm. well known. Policeman, but I don't. I don't know whether Nananka would ever got gone into politics in that way. But who knows? Who knows? But I think what is interesting is that um, is whether or not that these principles of domination are going to change mm. under Petro. You know, is they as Petro challenging? Will you also get the elites rallying round to see how they can defend principles they've always defended? And it doesn't mean that there aren't principles that have been contested. There are. We also talk about those in the document, yeah. uh, such as over taxation, mm-hmm. over the state's role in the regions, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, issues like that, will would ever the Colombian uh, elite actually kind of imagine seeing a, a military man? We still have no women in major no. political roles. Um no. In, in politics, uh, that would be a major shift, mm. but it would bring it bring up the possibility that you would think there could be major shifts in other senses as well. And who knows what that would mean and uh, where that would, you know, what where it would take us. I mean, I don't see at the moment that the Colombian elite, which has had sort of, you've got such a power amongst the civilian strata that I don't know the moment when they would call upon the military um that would things would have to get pretty pretty bad yeah. in and in terms of petro's program and you know i can't it, i can't at the moment imagine that but uh but it's not colombia has a different history to other places where we do know that has happened yeah, yeah. there tends to be the separation a bit there. Colombia's history tends, and, and we tend to look back at it as well, which sometimes I think can be dangerous. We just say, well, you know, Colombia's never done this. Or not. Yeah, well, yes. but... I mean, <laughs> Chile, I mean, to be honest, Chile, in, when Allende came in, you know, in 73, as well, he was overthrown in 73, um, no one would have expected the military to come in. But exactly. then you have the United States backing that. <laughs> and, uh, and so you've then got the issue of the... The global, the shifts in global power, and exactly, you know, what the role of United States will be, because up until now, one of the principles of domination has been precisely to accept yeah. the U.S. as the policy reference point. Yes, this is true. This is true. Now, it's uh, so much. There's too much. Um, uh, when yes. we talk about the the sort of the people who have most suffered in this in this violence, uh, the traditional communities such as the Afro uh, communities and the indigenous communities, and then the deaths of social leaders, well, this comes back to land again, doesn't it? And then, yes. so I ask, I ask you this: Is that the land, if it's being fought over, or in the eyes of many, protected because it belongs to others? Uh, you know, we see these awful figures because we're in the city, so we just see them on the front pages and so on. We don't live it, but we see these awful figures of, of massacres or murders and, and, and contract killings. We capture the guy who pulls the trigger, but who are the people 
giving the orders? I think that's my question at the end of that uh, kind of digression. Yes. Well, I, I know it's a very important question. And uh, I think we've got quite a lot of data now and information about the fact that paramilitaries were funded um, by elites, uh, landowning elites, cattle ranchers and others. Um, and so there clearly is a willingness um, to use violence to protect um, already, uh, we are seeing Indigenous people sort of feeling that they've got some sort of possibility now to regain land that they've lost. And we're now seeing responses to that from um, landowners and uh, economic interests. Well, I'll say it, Fedegan, Fedegan for Cesar. <laughs> yes, I'll say it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, the cattle ranchers, you know, they feel and i mean there is a history in latin america as well of cattle ranching you know being behind death squads uh, i've seen it in chiapas in brazil uh so there's a whole issue there about um those elites particularly feeling they have the right to defend their land no matter mm. what and whether and, and even though it was seized from indigenous people in the past they consider they will defend that no matter what even though we know economically it's often unproductive yeah. that study we know that we have climate change we need a new kind of agriculture that colombia imports food in an extraordinary fashion when it mm. has the most amazing potential for growing its own food so these issues are about a whole economic model and it's very worrying to think that there might be a group of powerful people prepared to fund a sicarios, assassins, other, other armed groups to defend their right to own land. Yeah. We, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago with uh, Jessica Lopez in the uh, University of Lund, and actually she's an expert in land transformation. And, and it was mm -hmm. fascinating to talk about that. It's like, you know, the, well, I mean, the cattle farming isn't productive. At the end of it, it's just not. The land isn't, you know, but they keep pushing in the frontiers. But let's, and, and now, when we talk about these these constellations and the regions and cattle farming, there's a, I want to bring in my own personal experiences because I everybody who listens to this knows I have uh, businesses in Montpos Bolivar and the politics is run by the Montes family, which you've put in the report. I mean, totally. And even one of the even when they do their campaigning, or let's say the, the person they have backed to be mayor, it's the, the campaign's poster is like Montemos Albus. It's, I mean, they don't make any bones about it. And then, they, you know, I know that they put people into the Consejo in Bolivar and from Montpos and so on and so forth. And, and, it's, and it's an open secret. It's when it's not even a secret at all. It's like, I, are you Montista or you're not a Montista? Are you this? And it's so very interesting to see that it, it plays out on this level. And then across the river, I think it was San Zenon, where the urns were burnt and so on. So it had one of the latest sort of local elections. And election over, I mean, there must have been 400 people in that town. But mm. the two parties were the Conservative Party and, and the Central Democratic Party. Mm. And, uh, but it's about who controls the territory. And then on that side, that's Magdalena, that's the, the Nieco or Caneco, I don't know how you say it. Yes, yes. And then the other people that we do. So we have the Montes running Montes and around. And then just over the way in Sucre, we have the the Garcias and everybody knows and everybody yes. knows what the Garcias did when he was uh, mayor of Cartagena and, and you know just, just, he get taking half of the port with him uh, tying up uh, the healthcare system fin finishing off uh, social security everybody knows and yet it still just continues and I just don't understand it because to see it in your report is is wonderful to see it in writing but we live it and I don't I don't in places like Sucre and you know Medio Magdalena in the middle of Bolivar or middle of Cesar or the middle of Magdalena, I don't see it changing. I, I so you but I'll jump in again. You've got the three or four options that academics have written down as how to sort of it's not it's not destroy elites, it's it's how to sort of go about decreasing the importance. And I mm -hmm. tend to I tend to sort of 
veer towards the James Robinson solution. It's like just taking away their their. I, I guess it's the importance again, taking it away, just you know, gradually, sort of diminishing. But this is going to take time. Would you be more towards Robinson or Piketty or uh, elsewhere? <laughs> what? Because you've got a few up there, and Piketty, of, of course, has been advising petrol and economics, yes. which has um, got a lot of people up. You know, got. <laughs> <laughs> got their backs up a little bit for his so but uh, i mean perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about those different solutions from the different academics yes well of course you know the the first solution destroying is the historical one of europe um and it's the the revolutionary one um and ultimately uh we've seen what uh, attempts to do that through the sort of insurgencies in colombia which have ultimately led to more and more violence, uh, horrific violence as well, on both by insurgents, but by the army and by the paramilitary, etc. Um, and so I, I don't, you know, I can't imagine anybody sees that as a, a very good way forward. Um, so, uh, but, you know, the James Robinson one, the kind of, you know, we have to think, well, will the elites allow themselves to be disappeared if you see what i mean no. <laughs> so careful, I think, careful yeah. with that word yes <laughs> exactly sorry yes absolutely yes and no i did not mean disappearance <laughs> in the yeah. um i um so my big question is you know I, you know these are powerful people who have tended to come together when necessary and even what you were just describing of all the elites in these these regions and uh and areas um the transactional politics right has meant that you know the bogota elite to run the country has had to depend on those people and allow them to entrench themselves right through the deals that are done for votes and which means that you know uh we've and we've had an increasing fragmentation an increasing capacity of those elites to entrench themselves and so you know it's hard to see what they would give up peacefully right this is my great fear um, and so I'm very much uh, a peace, I call myself an anthropologue de la paz, a peace anthropologist. Um, I've written a lot about violence and I'm, you know, and my latest book was on a politics without violence, question mark. And so I'm sort of always looking, you know, to the fact that actually found a way to have a policy, you know, to, to deal, address with the violences, we would do more politics and we would have more participation. And I suppose the the part I like about Piketty is that I think he is talking uh, in his latest book, uh, when it, uh, one of his very long detailed books, is on participation. And I I'm very into participation. I I tend to feel that until so, you know I, f I feel if we can work to reduce violences, we enable more participation to work on the conditions that reproduce violence. That sounds like a strange sentence. But it, it feels to me that there's an iterative process where, you know, we need to start saying, you know, encouraging people to recognise, including the elites, that violence cannot be a way for defending their interests. If you're going to have a, a serious democracy, you cannot have it underpinned by violence. There has to be the rule of law. And there has to, there cannot be impunity. And there has to be, I mean, I'm very interested in the work of the HEP in the gun work on restorative justice and at least to find a way forward. And who knows how far Petro's total peace will, will be able to be workable. But, you know, he's obviously putting out some something there. And he put in his inauguration, I really did welcome his emphasis on all the violences. Yeah. If we could make the sort of de addressing violence one of the critical issues and encourage the elites who cannot want violence to touch themselves, right, so they can't allow it to touch others. Mm. And to have, uh, you know, Latin America has more private police, privately, than it has state police. And I think Colombia is probably the same, although Colombia's done quite a lot of work on police reform, including uh, General Naranjo, who you <laughs> mentioned earlier. Uh, but we still have a long way to go. Police are still not trusted. There's still issues of corruption. So you need a security policy. Um, so anyway, it's a long answer to your question because your question is very, very complex. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I tend to feel to face realities. Yeah. There is no evidence yet that the elites are, allowed, are going to allow their wealth to be questioned and to allow for the transformation. I would like to see that a sector of the elites will see that that's the only way you will get a, a democratic country and also a country that could be 
economically preparing for climate change yeah. and socially preparing, you know, and to deal with all those violences that uh, are so horrendous and uh, terrible. And a cl- country with such an educated sort of strata as Colombia, mm. um, to to, fact, the, to to sense that you you also live side by side with some of the worst violences in the world mm. and the highest levels of inequality, there's something I would like to appeal to that, and perhaps James Robinson is thinking of this, that, you know, ultimately there could be some agreement they can do better. Yeah, I I think at the end, and I, I won't take up more of your time, when you when you look at that and we say sort of appealing to a kind of humanity, <laughs> uh, appealing mm-hmm. to a kind of decency about it, uh, I, I, I would put that in the same uh, sort of umbrella as Santos thinking that the idea of peace would just be enough to push through the you know the referendum of course it wasn't because it was picked apart at every level and and I would love that just you know nice (laughs) nebulous phrases such as terms such as decency and humanity might appeal it's so tough though isn't it it's so tough when you think oh you know your wealth might be questioned and then of course when you have an opposition who's saying oh we're all going to get poorer everything's going to get more expensive everything's going to do this but it all it all they all tether together the the taxes the inequality the land owning the political participation they all make one final argument it's one final discussion but each strand needs to be addressed before we get anywhere and i don't know i i i find myself I have moments of great hope, <laughs> and then I have moments that perhaps not such great hope. <laughs> I think that's it. And I worry when I hear some people talking about this and that, and it's like, okay, you know, I, 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 I may be socially conservative when it talks, when you talk of culture and education and things like that. Yeah. But on the other side, you know, I'm pretty liberal. It's like surely we should be participating to improve situations and so on. Yes, uh, and then I just feel like I'm some sort of hippy dippy because no, we've got to look <laughs> after ourselves. And so I don't know. I I think there's much more to be discussed here. And so I just take this moment to say thank you so much for your thoughts and sharing the report. And when can we expect the next segment out? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be next year, but ah. uh, don't worry, we're totally committed. Okay. Um, following this up and this as you said just now there is so much more to do and so many so many more aspects of the debate to be had and i just want to end on this because columbia is an extraordinary creative society yes it is amazingly creative i love it yeah. you know and it has incredible social movements and organizations as well that are also building peace you know mm. and doing stuff on the ground which we don't often see it's not as visible mm. that also always but i connect with those people a lot and i think there's always hope in that mm. uh, but clearly we all have to work together and this the idea of this is let's let's get this debate out there really seriously it really it really needs to be more of a conversation and and like you said but with president petro talking about the violence is is a huge step in the right direction it is it it's is, a huge it step you know whether you like him or not we do need to talk about this inequality and the violences in all their forms like we've discussed yes. in this show yeah. so okay. let me take this moment and just say thank you so much to jenny pierce who is professor or a research professor at latin america and caribbean center at the london school of economics Thank you for your time. I know it's late over there in the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, all sorts of things going on. I heard something happened recently over there, uh, but let's not discuss that. But thank you so much for your time. It has been a real pleasure. And promise us when you get the next the next one out, we'll have you back on the show. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, great, uh, very nice to talk with you. Thank you so much. A real <laughs> pleasure. Goodbye. <laughs> This episode was brought to you by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean. Since 1967, their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. 
And also our other sponsor is BNB Columbia Tours, experts in custom-made travel throughout Colombia. The team at BNB Columbia Tours can provide you with fantastic private experiences, creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com, complete the free itinerary form, and tell them that Columbia Calling sent you to receive a further 5% off their already great prices. So that's bnbcolombia.com and of course, latinnews.com. Thank you for everyone for listening. That's us. Farewell. And of course, check back next week. Bye-bye. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.